Hello, and welcome to Line One, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. Difficulty sleeping has affected all of us at one time or another. Lack of sleep or inadequate sleep can have drastic consequences for our day-to-day functioning as well as our overall health and happiness. What's insomnia? What is seasonal affective disorder? What about restless leg syndrome? What's the difference between snoring and sleep apnea? To help us answer these questions, I am pleased to have back sleep specialist, Dr. Ross Dodge. Please give us a call toll-free statewide at 1-888-353-5752. In Anchorage at 550-8433. 550-8433, or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Dr. Dodge, welcome back to Line 1. Uh, good morning, Dr. Clark. It is wonderful uh, to be back on with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back. Um, I want to start the show by giving you an opportunity to uh, reintroduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your training, your experience as a sleep doctor. Yeah, certainly. And uh, thanks again for the invitation to be on the show. I I see this as an opportunity to kind of touch a really broad segment of the population up here, people that I probably see in the grocery store and answer questions that I think is probably a very frequent one that people have about practical stuff uh, regarding sleep. So I'm an internal medicine doctor by trade. I spent uh, just under 10 years in the Air Force of course, served uh, alongside you a couple of years back. And at the end of my training in internal medicine, I found that one of the things I saw in clinic repeatedly was presentations for people who had trouble with, you know, basic manners of feeling good, um, problems with sleep, problems with energy, problems with concentration. And what I found that was uh, was often related to was simple patterns of sleep and treatment of disorders that were related to the realm of sleep. And so after I finished my internal medicine training, I spent a year at Lackland Air Force Base doing a uh, fellowship in sleep disorders medicine. And then after my commitment with the Air Force, which ended in 2016, I've broadened my practice to incorporate a component of internal medicine doing hospitalist work, and then a lot of sleep disorders in the adult and pediatric population, kind of trying to make myself available to see anything that will be under the realm of sleep problems, uh, essentially with the goal of, of making people in our community feel better. Well, that's great. I mean, that's one of those things, uh, you know, I, I can tell you I feel so much better after even one good night of sleep, which seems to be rarer and rarer these days. But let, let's talk a little bit about the background of sleep. Let's give our listeners the uh, sort of building blocks. Why does the body need sleep? You know, what is happening to the brain and the body when you are sleeping? So the way I like to approach this question is if we if we use the phrase that sleep is the price that we pay for wakefulness. And what that means is that over the course of the day, the amount of metabolic energy and concentration and focus that's required to deal with everything. And I mean, I'm talking from the level of 
the light that enters your eye so you can recognize colors, to the ability to be able to cope with difficult situations, things that frustrate you, uh, concentrations to simple tasks like driving long distances when it's dark outside. You know, all of those things require a remarkable amount of energy. And sleep is the price we pay for that because we are required to have this period of, you know, quiescence or quietness where we allow ourselves to kind of rebuild or regrow and become energized again so we can face another day because this happens every 24 hours. And so if we look at this from an evolutionary perspective, and I think it's important to take it from that angle because it's difficult to know exactly why we sleep. And there are three leading theories One is a theory of our immune system, that we have to have strong immunity and it takes sleep in order to regenerate that daily. Another theory is that it's simple restoration of muscular growth and energy levels. And then a third is that there's a a very strong cognitive or intelligent component to it. You know, I, I think it is absolutely all three of those. And what I know for a fact is that it's a very important biologic function. And I think we can, we can all agree that it's important because we spend, you know, 30% on average of our lifespan sleeping. And so if you put that into perspective, if you live to the age of 90, that means that you have spent 30 <laughs> years of your life sleeping. I mean, which is just an incredibly impressive statistic. That's true. Oh my gosh, I, I have never even that. That is quite amazing. So, what? What? You know, I know that this is this is a difficult difficult question, but uh, and it's going to have a. Uh, it depends answer as with everything, but how much do people, how much sleep do people need? Uh, I have an email from Vicky who um, kind of wants to know how long is ideal. Um, and I know that this is going to be dependent upon um, uh, age, genetics, sex, but but talking generalities and maybe some specifics about how much sleep we should be getting. So this is an area of recommendation, and in healthcare, you know, we do we do screening tests, uh, we make recommendations, and we provide outlines for people in order for them to take better care of themselves. When we talk about recommendations for total sleep time for adults and, of course, for children, I think this is a place where the medical system itself is getting in the way of its own advice. And what I mean by this is I think if you pull anybody on the street and you say, how much time are you supposed to send to sleep, the usual answer you're going to get is eight hours. And then if you ask a follow-on question and you say, well, how many hours do you think you typically get? That person is more than likely to tell you, oh, nowhere near eight hours do Mm -hmm. I sleep. And if we look at really broad population databases and we take self-reported and uh, objective data in the forms of sleep study results, we come up with a very specific number, which is the average adult needs 7.2 hours of sleep per night. And I always 
chuckle when I reference that because it's it's a it's a ridiculous assertion to make. Uh, one, because it's a very defined number, and I don't think I know anybody who's going to set their alarm to go off after 7.2 hours of sleep. But two, because if we set an expectation for sleep that's based on a, a, this external fixed number, what it does not take into account of is the individual. And so if a population average is 7.2 hours, that's an average, which means that there are lots of people out there that do wonderful with six hours of sleep, and there are some people out there that require eight, nine, or 10 hours of sleep. And so I think the way we should be suggesting this to patients is that most people need somewhere between six and eight hours. Everybody has a different need for total sleep time, and the surest sign that you're getting an adequate number of sleep for you as an individual is based upon how you feel. And that's a general answer because then the follow-on question could be, well, how do I know if I feel good? And you know what I, I encourage people to do is I say, well, you know, trend this out over a couple of weeks, and if you are able to accommodate your lifestyle of seven hours per night, and in general, you feel well, and after lunch, you don't have this dramatic crash, and your mood and concentration is where you want it to be, then you're probably somebody who does very well with seven hours of sleep per night. So the, the kind of takeaway there is that I think we do a disservice recommending a very fixed number, and what we should do is provide a, a general outline that allows people to flexibly choose what reflects their underlying biologic needs for sleep. Absolutely. Okay, I want to give the call-out numbers again. Remember, uh, statewide, one 5752 In Anchorage, 550-8433. Dr. Dodge, I want to get to an email here from Larry um, and piggybacking off your answer there. Uh, age and sleep, um, you know, what happens to our need for sleep as we age. Uh, I know as I am getting older, I seem to work on less and less sleep. I don't know if that's normal, but his question is um, in general, and uh, is there a general or universal connection between quality of sleep and aging and degeneration, um, uh, you know, in terms of cognitive impairment, that sort of thing? Yeah, so despite my best intention, every day I wake up, I seem to be one day older than I was when I went to bed the night before, as do all of us. So I think the way to approach this question is if we take a, a, a little step back and look at the way the brain organizes sleep. So when you, you talk about our existence, you know, there are, there are essentially five states of existence that the, that the human body is going to be within at all times. We're either awake or we're asleep. And when we are asleep, that's divided up into what's called non-REM sleep. And there are three stages, stage one, two, and three. And they can be described as the depth of sleep increasing as you get to the higher numbers and deep sleep referencing somebody sleeping harder, more difficult to wake up. And then there's REM sleep, which stands for rapid eye movement sleep. And over the course of the night, there is a, uh, a, a transition between all of those stages of sleep, which happens in a very cyclical nature. 
And that changes from the point of birth all the way up until the end of our life. But once we've stabilized to our adult sleeping patterns, which happens in late adolescence, there is this general trend towards less depth of sleep. So older individuals spend less time in N3 sleep as they do light sleep, which is stages one and two, whereas the percentage of REM sleep stays rather fixed. And the other thing that we see occur over time is that the total minutes spent to sleep while you're in bed tends to get less and less over time. And of course, this is a, a very general rule and doesn't apply to everybody, but most of us can expect to sleep less over time with less depth of sleep. But what is both fascinating and should be reassuring for our listeners is that those that maintain good health, diet, exercise, limiting how much caffeine they consume, not smoking tobacco, and so on, those that maintain good health consistently report very similar quality of life metrics as they age relative to people that are younger and are getting more clock minute time of sleep as they were getting earlier in their life. Okay. Excellent. Excellent point. We have a call uh, from Lauren calling in from Anchorage. Lauren, welcome to Line One. Hi. Yes. Um, thank you very much. I have chronic insomnia, both, you know, um, I can't shut my mind down very easily, but I can't shut my body down because I have a genetic defect of the collagen gene in my body. So it affects my muscles and things like that. I'm on a sleep medicine, Sonata, then I'm on a muscle relaxer, and then um, I was on Xanax. And that would help, but some nights I would also have to take colonopin. But the problem with that is I started wetting the bed. And um, Okay, Lauren, I'm going to interrupt you there. Specifically, is there anything specific you want to ask Dr. Dodge? I would like to know. Now that they took away the Xanax and they've replaced it with diazepam, I'm only sleeping four to five hours. And um, I do use a sleep apnea, a CPAP machine. And uh, I would just like to know um, if there's any other meds out there, or I do try to use sleep hygiene. Awesome. Okay, Lauren, we can get to those. Uh, I do have a um, a section on the sleep medications coming up later in the show, so stay on for that. Um, and I'm going to transition Dr. Dodge here to talking a little bit about insomnia in general um, and sleep hygiene. So um, thanks for your call. Appreciate it. We'll have you take the uh, answer off air. Dr. Dodge, can we transition a little bit to uh, sleep hygiene, what it is, why it's important? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Lauren touched on uh, several very important aspects of sleep. And, uh, you know, she the, the difficulty sleeping insomnia 
underlying sleep disorders in terms of uh, therapies with CPAP machines and then medication options. And then hopefully we'll have enough time to touch on each of those for her because they're all excellent questions. The, the sleep hygiene approach is something that uh, is without question incredibly important but also leads to immense amounts of frustrations for my patients. And what I mean by that is the brain's ability to fall asleep, and by that it's simply getting in bed, turning off the lights, and then realizing that your alarm is going off, is a process that occurs without the individual being responsible for it. Another way to say that is if I asked you, Dr. Clark, and I said, I challenge you to go home tonight and not sleep, you would be able to do that. It might be difficult. Um, You might need to drink coffee or splash cold water on your face, but you are in charge of maintaining wakefulness by cognitive ability. You tell yourself you're going to stay awake, you stay awake. The flip of that is not true, which is a very interesting way to look at the problem. So if I were to propose to you, if I said, Dr. Clark, I would like you to fall asleep five minutes after we finish this show, you would probably think that the request is ridiculous because we all know that we cannot go to sleep on command. And so I'm kind of long form circling back to the question of sleep hygiene. And the reason that is such an important way for people to overcome insomnia is because without the adequate environment, it's very challenging for the brain to go asleep. And that's things that most people don't need a doctor to tell them. It's drinking coffee late in the day, large, heavy, rich food meals late in the day, uh, having your bedroom with televisions on and iPad beeping and doing things other than sleep in the bed. Uh, I mean, these are things that inhibit the brain's ability to fall asleep naturally. So when we talk about sleep hygiene, it's simply making sure that the environment that you present to the brain and the body is conducive to going to sleep. The next step on that is patients who say, well, okay, look, I I get that, guys. My bedroom is dark. My bedroom is cool. I stop drinking coffee afternoon. I cut television off at 6 o'clock in the evening, and I still can't go to sleep. So therein becomes more of a clinical problem, which is insomnia. And the way I present this to patients is I say, would you ever go to the dining room, sit down at the table, and try and make yourself hungry? And people chuckle and they say, well, of course not. Why would I do that? And I say, exactly. You sit down at the dinner table to eat when you get hungry. The part of the brain that is responsible for these physiologic drives, which includes hunger, and include sleep is the same area. And so the drive to sleep needs to be naturally occurring within the body and in the context of an environment which allows an individual to fall asleep. And so 
Ross, I'm going to cut you off there just for a minute because um, we're going to go to a quick break, and I want to try to reconnect with you. We're having some feedback on your line, so I want to make sure the listeners can hear you okay. Um, we're going to take a short break here. You're listening to Line One, your health connection. If you have a question or a comment for our guest today, give us a call statewide, one 353 5752 one 5752 or in Anchorage, 550-8433, 550-8433. After the short break, we'll continue our discussion on sleep with sleep specialist, Dr. Ross Dodge. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. There are many ways to support your local public media station. Donate now and arrange to make a planned gift as a bequest. Your legacy will stretch from today to many tomorrows. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. I'm joined by sleep specialist, Dr. Ross Dodge. Do you have questions about seasonal affective disorder or sleep apnea? Call us toll-free statewide, 1-888-353-5752. In Anchorage, 550-8433. Or email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. All right, Dr. Dodge, we got you back on the line. Yes, sir, and sorry about that, guys. Oh, no worries. This sounds a much better connection here. Let's uh, let's keep going. I, I want to get to some of the sleep disorders because um, I'm getting quite a few emails about various things. And um, also we'll do a uh, – I have a long list here of rapid-fire things because I want to make sure our listeners get their questions answered. We talked a little bit about insomnia. Let's, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about um, seasonal affective disorder and, and what it is and, and what we do about it. Yeah, so I, I we can say it's quite likely that just about everybody who's lived in Alaska for more than a few years has been touched by some form of seasonal affective disorder. And a general overview would be that there's there's essentially two kinds. That the kind that we are more familiar with is going to be the winter blues or seasonal affective disorder that worsens when it gets dark and cold. But there's also a, a, a kind of an alternative form of seasonal affective disorder, which occurs in the summertime. And the, the general way that presents in people is the winter blues tends to be patients start sleeping more frequently. They feel tired progressively more during the course of the day. And a really common complaint is concentration. People just don't feel like they can maintain focus. The... The summer form of seasonal affective disorder is almost exactly the opposite. It can almost be an overly energetic form, uh, hypomanic, you could call it, 
and people find that they're more irritable. It's more difficult to sleep, and they find it more fragmented. And I kind of joke when I talk about the summer form of seasonal affective disorder that I seem to incur every year when my neighbor uh, insists on mowing his lawn at 11.30 at night. And I, I suppose that might go more into the environmental category, but it's clearly disruptive to my sleep. Perfect. Okay. So what about happy lights? I've, I've heard a lot about happy lights. I have one myself. Um, what are they? Does it, does it work? Does it prevent seasonal affective disorder? Is it worth the money? Yeah. So, so there's three ways to approach, and I'll, I'll kind of stick with the more common form of seasonal affective disorder, which is what I see much more frequently in the office, and that's the winter version of it. And the three mainstays of therapy are the basic stuff which we've already touched on, which is making sure that your sleep environment is good. And one of the things I always kind of point out is that people tend to start consuming more and more coffee over the winter months up here. And that can be a very sneaky increase in the amount you consume. So it's really important to just check yourself on when your end-of-day coffee is had. And generally, that should be around lunchtime or earlier. Light therapy, which is the light boxes that we can buy, yeah, absolutely is a is an important, inexpensive, and very practical way. And what we're simply doing is reproducing the body's expectation of sun presence and trying to reproduce that, whether it's in our office or in our kids, we're getting our day started. And what that serves to do is to generate a lot of the awake neurotransmitters that take some time to develop when we are first waking up to get you ready for the day and, and hopefully for most patients minimize the sleepy component. And then the third approach to therapy is to consider medications. And depending on how persistent the symptoms are or how low patients feel and how problematic there is their day-to-day function, there are a handful of medications which uh, can be pretty darn effective at making people get back to what their baseline is. And, and the nice thing is that most of these medications do not need to be continued long-term, is we will selectively use them around patients' problem areas. And most patients are have a good sense of, gosh, yeah, September, I really start to drag, and then it's real bad January, February, and then I perk up again in March around breakup time. Perfect. Okay, and we have a call, uh, Alan, in Anchorage. Alan, welcome to Line 1. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I've got a uh, several questions. I don't have any problem going to sleep. It seems like uh, it's more like I'm going to dream because I'm always dreaming. And I am often uh, wake up in the middle of the night with, uh, you know, my hair is wet, my my bed, uh, uh, you know, the pillows and the sheets sometimes are wet from sweat. But it's almost, uh, I can count on a dream. I don't know what that's all about. But recently, I've had to give up um, the sleep apnea machine because it was recalled. And, but my sleep is generally good. I mean, I don't. Like I said, I don't have any problem going to sleep, but I go to dream. What's with that? Okay, that's a good question, Alan. Um, and uh, also, uh, Dr. Dodge, um, as we get into the sleep apnea segment, let's talk about that recall, too. It did affect a lot of people. So um, what's what's about the dreaming, Dr. Dodge? 
You know, and I think, Alan, those are both good questions, and they, I, I think that they're directly related to one another. Uh, some of the basic screening questions that I encourage uh, all physicians to be talking with their patients about are things along the lines of, do you find that you have to use the bathroom and urinate frequently through the night? Uh, do you find that you have heavy sweats to the point where bed sheets or pillowcases need to be changed? And then do you find that you're kind of waking up randomly over the course of the night without a good reason as to why? And, you know, I usually don't ask specifically about dreams because there is such a, a wide variety of presentations. But the practical point regarding dreams is that we are unlikely to recall the vast majority of our dreams. And when we do have memory of them, it's often because something interrupted the state of dreaming. So we're able to retain just a fragment of the dream and then carry that into consciousness and say, oh, my gosh, that was quite a dream. And the significance of all those different things is that one of the most common forms of sleep disruptors is sleep disorder breathing, which is much more commonly known as obstructive sleep apnea or just simply sleep apnea. And so it sounds like Alan had been treated with a CPAP machine, which is one of our mainstays of therapy. But just to kind of confirm the point of question is a lot of those symptoms are often related to recurrent disruption of sleep. And sleep apnea tends to be one of the most common forms of that. And then I, this is probably a good point to touch on the recall because it's, uh, we just referenced it. And in mid-June of last year, 2021, uh, Philips Respironics had recalled just over 4 million uh, positive pressure machines, a variety of uh, CPAP and BiPAP machines which was related to potential breakdown of a piece of foam that is used in the machine to keep the motors quiet so that it's not audible to the patient when the machines are in use. Um, the thing that's important for people to know is that there are three driving factors that led to the recall. And if one of these three things was occurring in the patient's home, then it, I, they need to talk with their physician and make sure that they have registered online with the company, Respironics, for a replacement device. And those three things were kind of in order of importance is if they were using a specialized cleaning system, so a device that would connect to their CPAP or BiPAP machine to automatically clean it, uh, that is a risk for causing this foam to break down. If the machine itself was exposed to a uh, high heat environment, and this is not reflective of the internal settings of the machine, this would need to be an ambient room temperature above 80 degrees, which is sustained. And so that very rarely applies to my Alaska patients. And then the third thing is also environmental, and that's whether it was a humid environment, uh, again, not related to the internal settings of the machine, but the, the room, ambient room humidity uh, being consistently over 40%, um, which, again, very rarely applies to patients, especially up here in the winter that live in Alaska. 
Perfect. I'm glad we were able to, to relay that information um, for people that may have not heard about the um, about the recall. We have a call. Uh, Charles is calling in um, from uh, is it Salta. Salta. Um, Charles, welcome to line one. Greetings. Greetings. Uh, I this philosophy here. Uh, Thoreau had an idea in Walden that uh, more people were asleep than awake at any time in the world and, and called asleep the most common sense. And I was wondering your opinion on that, if you think that more people are asleep <laughs> than awake at any time. Interesting question, Charles. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> Go ahead, Dr. Yeah, Dodge. I would say that there is a high likelihood that that is true. And if we go back to some of the earlier comments about the quantity of time that we spend over the course of our life, and then look at the way the sun is only able to impact half of the globe at any given time, I think that there is much truth to the statement. I think, you know, as, a, as kind of a tangential response, is one of the things that has been interesting is with the advent of electrification and artificial light, we, in a very recent span of human history, have been able to change whether or not we are able to continue doing stuff. You know, so we go back not that far in time, 150 years, the day ended when the day ended. And with, you know, of course, the limitations of wax or oil-based candles and so on, there was very limited capability to be able to do stuff once the sun was set. And so back then, I think without question it held true. I think now when you look at topographic satellite imagery of the world on the nighttime side of the globe, I mean, it's striking how much the light is emitted and so that would make me pause a bit and say that, you know, perhaps it's not 50 percent at any given time in modern humanity, and it's more like 30 to 40 percent. But either way, it is certainly a large chunk of the world's population. Excellent. Okay, I want to get to an email from Tom, um, and he has questions about restless leg syndrome, uh, anything new in treatment. He's using some low doses of gabapentin and stretching exercises. Um, anything um, you want to get across to our listeners related to restless leg syndrome? Yeah, so restless leg syndrome is the great trickster in clinical medicine. And what I'm trying to say in that is that there are many different conditions that can present with a variety of symptoms that are very suggestive of restless leg syndrome. And so we just take a step back for your listeners and kind of define what restless leg syndrome is. It is a sensation that occurs predominantly in the evening hours. It should be something that is generally relieved by movement or walking around. It should be in the absence of known medical problems that can cause symptoms like restless leg syndrome. And then finally, it should be responsive to the usual medications we use for restless legs. So now that we have a sense of what restless legs or RLS is, one of the standard therapies that sounds like Tom is already taking, which is gabapentin. 
and that's a neuropathic or nerve-specific agent that can be thought of as quieting down the activity levels in the peripheral or the, the, the nerves in the limbs or the legs and can be pretty effective uh, for a lot of patients. I think that one of the most important things to do in treatment of restless legs is for patients to maintain an active lifestyle during the day, to always incorporate a stretching routine before they approach bed and particularly before they notice onset of symptoms, and then avoid a lot of the really common culprits which can trigger restless legs, which are things like caffeine, alcohol, uh, use of any nicotine-based product, and in some patients, really heavy meals at the end of the day that are rich, things like chocolates or steaks or uh, fat-rich foods, that can be a pretty prime trigger for restless leg syndromes in, in quite a few people. Perfect. Well, Dr. Dodge, um, I have a question here about sleep apnea, and then we're going to transition into a little bit of uh, another break and some rapid-fire questions for you. Um, since you are, uh, I believe, the only sleep specialist uh, for pediatrics in Alaska, correct me if I'm wrong, um, Jillian would like to know um, how common is sleep apnea in children and um, can it impact their cognitive, social, emotional development? What should parents watch out for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so absolutely sleep apnea is, is I think, a, a commonly overlooked condition in our younger patient populations. Uh, the, the mechanisms of it are very similar to adults. If we think of the airway that we breathe through, so if you're brushing your teeth, if you look in the back of your throat where that dangly thing hangs down the uvula, that starts the portion of the airway which is comprised of lots of very delicate, intricate muscles that allow us to speak. The downside of all those muscles is that as they relax, that the shape or the position of that breathing tube can change dramatically. And if it changes to the point where you start to limit enough air into the lungs, that can usually manifest initially as simple snoring. But as that airway collapse becomes more and more pronounced, you get to the point where you not only make noise, when you're breathing, but you start to impact the lungs' ability to obtain enough oxygen to pass along to the rest of the body. And so it's the limitation on airflow and oxygenation, along with a arousal that the brain is triggered because anything that limits normal breathing causes changes in the brain's awareness. And if you're sound asleep, that simply means that you wake up a little bit, even if it's not a full awakening, but those two things occurring repeatedly at night, the low oxygen and the disruption of the brain sleeping patterns start to cause problems. In adults, we see that as blood pressure issues, a higher risk of stroke, and a lot of cognitive impairment, sleepiness is what patients complain of. In kids, it tends to be the opposite, where it is often hyperactive presentations, lots of irritability, um, inattention is a really prominent component where the kiddo just can't pay attention. 
And so that's what I focus in on in discussions with pediatricians and with families is that if you've got a kid that is being considered for a hyperactive type condition and there's a component of breathing abnormality that is visible at night, whether that's snoring or lots of wake-ups and trouble getting back to sleep, I think that that kid should be considered for an evaluation with with me as a sleep doctor um, or in some cases directly for a sleep study to evaluate all the breathing patterns. Okay. Well, let's take our our second and last break, and then we'll get uh, um, some more of these emails and calls if we can. You're listening to Line 1, Your Health Connection. If you have a question or a comment for our guest today, give us a call, 888-353-5752 in Anchorage, 550-8433. After this short break, we will continue our discussion on sleep with sleep specialist Dr. Ross Dodge. You're listening to Line 1 from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line 1 on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Most people who received a COVID vaccine still have great protection against hospitalization and death. However, if you're 16 and older and it's been six months since your last Pfizer or Moderna dose, or two months since your Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you are now eligible for a booster. Learn more at covidvax.alaska.gov or call the Alaska COVID Helpline at 907-646-3322. This message sponsored by Department of Health and Social Services. Welcome back to Line 1, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. I'm joined by sleep specialist, Dr. Ross Dodge. Do you have questions about various sleep medications? Give us a call, 888-353-5752, or email us, line1 at alaskapublic.org. We're going to take a call here from Jason in Wasilla. Jason, welcome to Line 1. Hi. Hi. To the both of you and everyone who's listening. What can we answer for you, Jason? Okay. Yeah. Um, Well, I don't know if it's an answer. I just wanted to touch two things that I've noticed about my own self in regards to sleep and waking up in the middle of the night. Um, If I wake up in the middle of the night um, and cannot go back to sleep and toss and turn for hours, if I peel off the blanket and the sheet and let myself get completely cold, almost to the point of shivering sometimes, and then put the blanket and sheet back over me, I fall asleep immediately, and the rest of the night is perfect. Interesting. Okay. And the second thing is I've noticed if I'm sleeping and I have to open my mouth to breathe because my nasal is blocked by uh, anything, you know, whatever's going on in there, um, if I drink rapidly four to six ounces of water and course stay sitting up for a minute and let it go down and then lay down literally like a minute or two later i will feel all the sinuses open up and i will breathe perfectly normal again okay jason well thanks for your experience i just i wanted to say that out on the radio because i know a lot of people have those struggles with sleeping and i don't typically do but when i did and when i do i noticed that those two things solve the problem immediately well, thank you for sharing your experience. Um, Dr. Dodge, we have about 15 minutes left. I want to get to a couple of quick-fire questions for you because I have quite a few emails to get through. Now, I'm going to uh, ask you the impossible, which is to 
uh, stick to about uh, one minute or less for these answers so we can get through a few of them. And I want to talk to about medications too. So first one, uh, we have a couple emails regarding napping, uh, especially for people who aren't getting enough sleep at night. Uh, would it help to work in a nap? Uh, give us your spiel on naps uh, with one minute or less. So just to reassure you, Dr. Clark, I have set my own timer. <laughs> I am, I am, I am always talking too much. So regarding regarding naps in sixty seconds, the general answer is avoid. Uh, the reason that's important is because the drive to sleep at night is in large part based upon the pressure for sleep that you build over the course of the day. And that's interestingly specifically related to a neurotransmitter by the name of adenosine. And if people take naps during the day, especially if they're longer than 30 minutes, you can dramatically reduce that drive to sleep so that your pressure, your brain's willingness to fall asleep that night can be significant and curtailed. So one way to overcome the problem is push through it during the day so that you can have a normal sleep period that night and then get back on a regular schedule. Perfect. Perfect. I uh, I took a little nap while you were talking there. So um, hopefully our listeners. Uh, <laughs> I'm well, kidding, both, of course. both know that it was less than 60 seconds. It was less than 60-second nap, power nap. Uh, okay. So uh, uh, we have an email from Dr. Bauer wants to know the relationship between growth hormone and sleep. She remembers learning this in the past, but not sure if it's uh, still a belief. She is absolutely spot on. Her growth hormone is, is intimately tied to the duration we spend in slow-wave sleep, which is also referred to as M3 sleep that we talked about a little bit earlier. For adults, this has less of an impact. Uh, but for my pediatric patients, it can be profoundly significant because if things inhibit the brain's normal architecture, meaning of sleep, meaning that we're the kid, the kiddo is not getting normal cycles of deep sleep and light sleep, then that can be tied to diminished secretion of growth hormone, which can then have consequences on normal development for that patient. So absolutely, you know, Dr. Bauer, I hope I'm getting the name right, is correct, and that's one of the reasons that screening testing can be so important for kiddos that might have growth limitations or stature problems early in development. Perfect. And this one might be a, a, a simple yes or no, maybe not. Um, there's apparently a study on Medscape that people that go to bed between 10 or 11 p.m. have a shorter, a lower chance of suffering cardiac problems. Have you heard of this study? Is there anything to this? Dr. Clark, even I can take a yes or no question and turn it into a 60-second response. <laughs> well, you got 60 um, seconds. So... So, so I'm aware of specifically, I think what I would point out is that there is absolutely a relationship between early morning periods and cardiac events. And that's been related to circadian rhythmicity when we have changes in our cortisol levels, growth hormone, which we just referenced that are tied to the patterns of sleep we have over the course of the night. So what researchers have fairly conclusively shown is that people who are already 
predisposed to cardiac disease, think smokers, people with high blood pressure, older people, that also have a coexisting, especially untreated sleep disorder, are at higher risk based on their circadian patterns. And that's why we see more cardiac problems in the early morning hours. Okay. And uh, the last one here, and then we'll get into some of the medications, is uh, sleep debt. Can you explain in uh, layman's terms the, um, the idea of what a sleep debt is? Sure. Now, this one will be a bit tricky in 60 seconds. but Well, let's give I you two minutes then. <laughs> if, if we go back to the initial conversation of sleep is the price we pay for wakefulness. And over the course of the day, as you're doing all that stuff, the debt that you're building up is actually a collective result of all the metabolism that you're burning through to be a functioning human. And one of the markers that we see is that trend upwards of adenosine, which is a byproduct of activity. It's when we take one certain molecule and break off a piece, and then the energy that's released allows us to do stuff. And so as our adenosine levels climb, we can tie a direct relationship to how sleepy people feel. So if somebody is consistently only getting, say, four or five hours per night, they're never effectively removing their adenosine levels over the course of what should be a normal sleeping period. So they always start off with a debt, meaning that there's too much of this adenosine floating around as they move into their next day. Interestingly, one of the things that blocks adenosine receptors in the brain is caffeine. So one of the mechanisms by which a cup of coffee helps us wake up is it takes that signal that's floating around the brain and it blocks it from getting to the brain. So when you drink a cup of coffee, you are inhibiting adenosine receptors leading to a promotion of wakefulness. Now that's a overly expensive way of saying a cup of coffee wakes you up because it blocks the thing that makes you tired. Oh, perfect. Perfect. And and uh, so that's why in the mornings, uh, a lot of people, their morning coffee will kind of perk them up a bit. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, I want to, uh, with these last few minutes, talk a little bit about medications. And I'm going to start you off on one that I've gotten several emails about and that is uh, pot and marijuana uh, in its usefulness with sleep. Yeah, so interesting question. I, I didn't anticipate that, although I should have, given that I don't think I can go three or four blocks in Anchorage anymore without seeing kind of a, a fancy, brightly colored marijuana retailer. Um, I don't have great information for our listeners uh, because, and I'm in disagreement with this, because we have, as a group of physician scientists, have had very limited access to good research, meaning I can't point my finger at referencing a study or a data set that I'm confident in to say that this intervention, treatment, results in this outcome for patients. That being said, I know that's kind of a physician hedge, that I have anecdotal exposure to lots of patients who find that their ability to fall asleep and stay asleep is better with some form of ingestion of THC or in some cases, in some cases 
CBD, the non-psychoactive component of marijuana. I really wish I could give the listeners uh, more fact-based input, but I just would be probably going a little bit beyond my comfort of knowledge to be able to definitively say, yes, it's good or no, it's bad. I think that's a very individualistic decision at this point. Okay. Well, let's spend the rest of the time talking a little bit about medications. Um, and we can start with um, um, Ambien. I think it's it's one of the more commonly known. And I do have an uh, email here from Susan who wants to know about uh, the use of Ambien to fall asleep and also if there is the potential uh, that it may lead to dementia. Yeah, so great question, and I think always on the tip of people's minds when they ask about sleeping medications. And we can broadly divide medications to sleep in three categories. It's kind of the the natural stuff that you pick up in the grocery store, the over-the-counter stuff, which is more in the pharmaceutical aisle, and then the prescription stuff, which is things you get from people like me. Uh, and, of course, in the spectrum of a prescription medication, it is a Schedule Four controlled substance, so it is tightly regulated. And the reason it's regulated is because there is a risk of dependence, which tends to be mostly psychologic, that occurs over time. And, of course, we should never be prescribing something that people have to take in perpetuity. And so the, the broad answer is that Taking Ambien, if in the context of another intervention, some behavioral changes to try and wean off of a sleeping medication, is always the right answer. The data connecting sleeping medications to dementia is squishy. I suspect that over time, we will find a relationship that is not directly related to the medication itself causing an increase in dementia syndromes, but more likely related to all the other things that surround the patient's medical history when they have chronic and long-term insomnia. So just to be clear, I think there is a potential risk. I do not think that we have conclusively proven it as a result of the medication, but I think it's a bigger picture problem that absolutely needs medical management for that person with a physician. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's jump back a little bit and let's start with, uh, oh gosh, we only have about four minutes here, but let's run through um, the easiest to uh, medications to, you know, you can get over the counter to help with sleep, things like melatonin, Tylenol, PM, those sort of things, and then moving into more of the uh, heavier hitters. So uh, if uh, I remember from our last conversation, uh, you had mentioned melatonin, um, I think was um, no need to take 10 milligrams. It was five milligrams was plenty and, and take it within 20 minutes of sleep, something something like that. Yeah, I'm going to start my timer again so I don't <laughs> go off tangent. <laughs> the, uh, so the, the, key, the highlights from melatonin is that interestingly, only about 20% of the population will have a physiologic, a body-generated response to taking a melatonin supplement. So that's striking because I can guarantee you that more than 20% of people who take melatonin have what they feel is a clinical response. They stick with it. 
I don't know what the actual percentage is, but it's more than 20%. And so what that suggests is that there is a strong placebo component to a lot of the things that we take for sleep. Um, I don't necessarily think that melatonin is a bad or harmful therapy. Um, I think it is more suited for adjusting your clock set point for people who go to sleep really late and would like to go to sleep a bit earlier. But the general outlines you already covered, which is a dose generally for adults less than 5 milligrams, for kids less than 2 or 3 milligrams, is suited to the average person or kid. Okay. Um, any use? So would Tylenol PM, Advil PM, Benadryl drugs kind of fall into the same category, or are they they're a little bit different? I strongly steer my patients away from anything that you buy that it is coexisting with Tylenol or ibuprofen or just straight Benadryl. Essentially, any over-the-counter sleep aid you buy is going to be some form of a uh, Benadryl. Uh, Benadryl has a side effect as an antihistamine medication of antihistamine blocking histamine. In the peripheral circulation, so out in our bodies and our fingers, it works well if you have itching or a rash, but it is essentially acting inside the brain as well. And histamine inside the brain is an awake or an awakening neurotransmitter. So when you block that neurotransmitter, you induce sleepiness. It's just not a great use of medication for that purpose. And one of the caveats of Benadryl is that it's very long acting in the body. So if you're taking Benadryl on a nightly basis, you're very slowly but steadily building up a background level of Benadryl, which can cause a lot of cognitive problems for people during the day. So I just don't think it's a good way to try and sleep. Okay. Well, Dr. Dodge, I think that is all we're going to have today, unfortunately. And I want to express my gratitude for you being with us today. Obviously, we have more to talk about. So we will have you back to discuss more on sleep. I want to give special thanks to you for being with us today. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tobin Shelby, and our producer, Adeline Baxter. You can find more information on this and previous programs on our website at alaskapublic.org. Let us know your thoughts or suggestions by emailing us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. This has been Line 1, your health connection. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Clark. Stay safe, Alaska. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants, and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Anchorage Bariatrics has been a supporter of Alaska Public Media. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life informed. This is Alaska Public Media.